Content note, this episode of So Many Books, So Little Time includes some rambling explorations of healthcare and health management and some attitudes and mentalities that one may have or encounter therein, as well as deeper dives into ethical and potential implications of research that are not always considered in terms of the humanities. Hey, hey folks, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Please join us as we continue our read of Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. This is episode four, starting with chapter 16. Music. is another recording of the podcast my back is marginally better actually i won't say marginally it's quite significantly better than last time um you know i've I've been doing lots of yoga and lots of rest and in the yoga as well i've been you know not speedily going into every new pose it's been very slow into everything and when, when i encounter resistance in my pelvic and back region i'm like okay so i'm just gonna stop at that point and just gently push just gently push and then okay new we're going into a new um pose i'm just gonna slowly move ah and there it is gently push (laughs) yeah and and that's actually something my my physio will point out and that's something that people don't realize that it's you're better off doing something slowly and carefully and well Rather than just rushing through and going through the motions, like sometimes mm, there there was a, a a post I read a while back about this, um, talking in regards to I think I think he worked in a factory, but uh, it was his supervisor time. But it, it pretty much is one of those universal things where, you know, we we think fast is the way to be, but it turns out when you're fast and you make mistakes, it ends up taking more time because you've got to uh, fix yep. your mistakes and mm-hmm. y- you're sloppier. So the idea that um, it's not that slow is better, it's smooth is better. Yes, that's that's actually the exact yeah. I get into trouble. In fact, I got into trouble today because um, I have my I have physios this uh, once a week, physiotherapy once a week, and um, we're working on balance. And it's like my it it is we did strength, we did balance. I don't like balance, or I should say my body and and my mind do not like balance um, mm. as an exercise, as a mindset and an approach to life, of course, of course, yes, yes. But um, I, uh, there's this exercise that we do where it's simply just me walking and then taking a step forward. I have to like remember not to swing my leg around to try and get the balance but walk through where my you know those those exercise balls? It's one of those half exercise balls that's flat on the ground. Huh. It looks like a like if you took Saturn and you sliced it in half along the ring, that's what it looks like. And then the idea is that I take one foot and I step on the middle of that and then I kind of walk through so walking through it with that one leg walking stepping on the uneven surface. I cannot do both legs on that uneven surface. That's not a good idea. But, um, and then also walking on a, uh, going, continuing, and then walking and turning on a, walking, turning my body around on a foam mat that is, it's more consistent than sand, but it is not 
by much, so it's a little mm. bit more solid than sand. But just getting told off that I like, okay, that time was good. You did it slowly and smoothly. And then I did it again. And said, no, don't rush through it. You need to do mm. it slowly and carefully. And then that way you're actually switching on the correct uh, muscles to try and get that will help with balance. I don't want to contradict her on this, but she's hoping that if I keep doing it, it'll improve things. I guess I'm, uh, it's not that I'm negative about it. It's just that I've done things like this before and it hasn't necessarily significantly changed. But it's changing the way, at least, I'm thinking about movement a little bit more. It, the challenge we have as humans is that when we're doing the exercise, if, if you're conscious of smooth and steady and actually thinking about what you're doing with your body when you're doing exercise, it's easier to do that during exercise. It's Some people don't do it, but it's easier to learn that or to switch that on when you're doing, say, yoga or qigong or pilates or whatever, because you're meant to do that and you can be reminded to do that. Mm-hmm. But in our everyday actions, that's where the injuries happen. Well, like, especially because uh, things like stress and stress, expectation... We, also, you're not you're not you, when you're doing other things like say you're um, I don't know you're washing the dishes, weird example, but you're washing the dishes, you're putting it away in a putting away a plate in a cupboard. Okay, you're a little cautious because you're holding a plate, but the action of say oh twist twisting your back, <laughs> opening that cupboard, that, you, we're not conscious of that movement because at that time we're focused more on the task and not how our body is doing the task. Whereas the exercise, amount- it's a yes, yes. The, the, amount the amount of people that uh, twinge their back, uh, turning the wrong way, emptying the dishwasher. Yes, or, or you say you're, you're going, yeah, or you're going to your bedroom and then you're like, oh wait, no, I had to get something else, and you do that sudden change of movement. Okay, so most, uh, I, I would assume that many of our listeners, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't affect you, but it can as you age. But also, even if you don't age, some people from a very young age have mm. got this, where you do a sudden change of direction because you're like, oh, no, I forgot that thing, or I, I meant to do that, or that's why I went to the kitchen, you know, that kind of thing. Your brain is not necessarily connected with this. You're not consciously moving your body. I think that's the difference. Conscious movement versus just automatic behavior. And I know there's this theory that the more you train using conscious behavior, the more you develop the muscles and the movement and your body develops it as a subconscious kind of mode of behavior. And that's, I guess, where we have differences depending on neurotype and depending on um, underlying conditions and depending on your stress levels and distraction and all these things. But that's why that's why most health, most injuries occur in the household, because it's the time where we switch off. Right. The, the whole idea about most uh, most accidents occur closest to home because you yep. suddenly get into that. Uh, oh, I'm I'm almost there. Don't need to worry yeah. too much. And, yes, car accidents are usually yeah, within ten minutes uh, distance from home. That's when you you become less. You, it's like it's auto, you become into this this rote way of of mm. functioning, and that's not always good. Now to take yeah. a step back to uh, you were talking about uh, movements and. Um, Hmm. Not not being used to it and getting to a point now for me uh, the trick and maybe it's where I've been uh, I, I've had an issue is that um, I'm used to a much freer and wider range of movement you know yeah. uh, before this back issue I I was actually pretty flexible and you know I walked regularly and it like certain things made me kind of 
you know, I, I could I could tell when my body wasn't moving the way it was supposed to, but by and large, it was pretty responsive. And ever since this, I haven't gotten back to that point. So, so, but but on the days where like I'm getting better and it's feeling more like I used to be, that's where I'm in the most danger because yes. suddenly it's like I'm better. I can just go at a quick pace because I'm used to going at a quick pace, and all of a sudden, oop, moved the wrong way, yeah. and now I've been set back. And this is a, and this is a common challenge that I'm and I'm speaking from it from like physiotherapy and chronic illness injury that kind of point of view. It is actually the highest rate of re-injury is usually when you are almost recovered, mm. much like the ten minutes away from home when you are you know ten percent twenty maybe ten percent away from I'm just rough rough number so don't quote me on that but once you are like almost there you're almost at that point the temptation to just go okay cool i'm all better now let me just go do the thing and you're like oh i just re-injured i once burst into tears at a physiotherapist in front of a physiotherapist because i'd just been through something like three months of rehabilitation on an an ankle injury and and a knee injury and something had gone really wonky and we'd almost got to that point where it was, it was, I'm, I'm never a hundred percent. It's never going to be fantastic, but it had improved. We'd done so much hard work. We got to that point. And then literally two days after I had, I was no longer needing crutches even like once in a while. Like I gave away my crutches. I was good. Everything was improving. Everything was fine. I fell and injured again, and then I was back on crutches for another six weeks. And it was just, mm. and and at this point, I'd I'd been through, I'd had a lot of stuff going on, and and I just burst into tears. And this poor physiotherapist, this poor guy who's used to dealing with like you know elite athletes and whatnot, just has this this um, you know, slightly chubby, injury prone, complicated health kind of academic kind of minded person. Just, just usually with a cheerful attitude and let's try this and let's go. And then I'm like, ah, oh, bloody at the end. So that kind of was sucky. But yeah, so the, the, the idea is, I guess over time I've developed less of that. I'm now, now no longer quite as um, emotionally, I'm less likely to burst into tears. I'll still get annoyed and I'll go, oh, please not again. But at this point in time, I guess I'm at a point where I kind of go, look, it's just the when you have a body, things happen. And you know that the odds of things happening, the more you injure yourself, the more the odds are going to be higher that you will injure yourself again. Um, and, and things like that. So statistically speaking, I kind of I rationalize it a little bit more. And I mean, it still sucks. It's still emotionally really frustrating to, to have to, like, I, I want to go to a, a prior to the podcast we were talking about, like I'm looking at going to a Japanese garden this weekend. I know it involves walking. I described this situation to my physio. And as I look, I know I'm going to be walking. They'll probably be on even surfaces. So because I know these things are risks, I'm preparing for the worst case scenario. And I'm, for example, wearing an ankle splint. I'm going to make sure that I've got ankle braces on. Uh, I'm going to maybe wear a knee brace on the one knee that I know can buckle sometimes. I'm going to make sure that I take some hydrolyte and I have some uh, instant ice packs in my handbag just in case I do fall. So I've got it ready. 
And I'm preparing, like, I know that the next day I should probably not have any appointments or I should just keep it clear just in case I need to recover or adjust or modify things. She goes, but, you know, why would, like, that's a lot of preparation for an activity. Like, yes, but I want to do the activity. And if I want to do the activity, I have to be ready to cope with the possible outcome that is not that low a probability, but it's a it possible outcome. Be prepared for the worst but be happy when the best happens, you know? And, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a, um, this is something that I guess a lot of people with chronic illnesses have to constantly think about, disability have to constantly think about, like considering the cost in terms of physical, emotional, even uh, monetary, is there going to be a financial burden? If I get injured, can I continue to do work or really, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff? You have to think about these things a lot more than, say, someone who is healthy and fit and might not have any health issues and never consider it. And a lot of people for the first time ever are now experiencing, and every year this is going to happen, you know, hundreds of thousands of people for the first time ever have to consider, oh, but I have to consider injury risk or whatever. But it's not a, I think it's a good skill set to develop and... It, you, it's not ne- not being negative. It's not being, like, I guess, toxically positive. Like, oh, nothing could possibly ever happen. Well, I'm just worrying over nothing. It's not about worrying. It's about, okay, well, if this happens, what can I do to reduce the risk of it happening? And if it happens, do I have some sort of support, something in place that I can I can deal with it? So you prepare for it and you do it. So you can go and do the fun thing and not have to think about it when you're there. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And I think it's it's interesting. You can immediately see the difference in mindset from someone who is who's a physio who is relatively healthy and fit and whatever, to someone who's had to be in and out of hospitals and have surgeries and knows what it's like to suddenly not function for a month or more. It's it's ridiculous how in shape those physios are. Well, the the the, the you know I guess yeah. they need to be a lot of the time. Like it's mm. really tough. It's a, it's a physically demanding area of work. It's much like orthopedic surgeons. Mm-hmm. The reason they tend to be very fit is because their work is physically demanding. And a, and a lot of doctors also, for example, work on that. But physical therapists, because they, they tend to be also very hands-on, not always, but some are very hands-on mm-hmm. or have to be ready to be hands-on if, if they need to. Or they need to, for example, model the movement that they're asking the patient to mm-hmm. do. And if you're doing that for upteen number of patients you get you get better at it some of them on, are open and honest about look my shoulder is busted i cannot actually show you that movement but here's a picture or here's a video or let me just grab my colleague and get them to show you so the ones that are open and honest about also injury and who get it yeah so and again injury is slightly different to when you have to deal with constant health issues but i think acknowledging it is good it's it's mm. it's a healthy way to kind of go look yeah okay I've got a body. Bodies are gonna, bodies are gonna do what bodies are gonna do, which is could be anything. It's not like you you go out there and can predict. Oh, there's, you know, the, a, a cat just darted across my path, and I tried to avoid stepping on it, and then I, you know, did a face plant on the the concrete. Like you. <laughs> did this happen not, to you? Ru? Not a cat, but um, I have I have. <laughs> I have had similar experiences, uh, occasionally very slapstick experiences to the point where where people have been in awe at how, you know, that whole uh, windmilling your arms to try and not fall? 
that's me. <laughs> I I am windmilling and I am contorting my body to avoid falling because I just I I know that falling is generally bad for me. Whereas we like to term it in in uh, uh, how I like to phrase it is spontaneous gravity checks. <laughs> Don't recommend. But is falling uh, <laughs> is falling good for anybody? No, but I mean, I've got very basic martial arts training in terms of I know how to fall to cause the least amount of injury. I managed to get that trained into my brain. But you, when it comes to uh, an unreliable, when it comes to decorative ligaments, um. <laughs> It, you can train as much as you want. Uh, you will occasionally have some really nasty falls. And um, I've surprised, unsurprisingly, pretty much every clinician who's ever dealt with me just and physio and whatever says, please don't, please, no more gravity checks for you. But look, it, yeah, it's life. But yeah, so it, I, I'm just glad that occasionally I get to be the comedic relief to someone who enjoys slapstick uh, comedy uh, at the expense of my, uh, you know, suffering, but it's okay. Just moving on, like you just move on, you, you accept it. But yes, it this kind of trying to figure out how to segue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the segue would be um, you've got someone like we just met someone who going to the laboratory with uh, meeting Doctor Breed and all that. The segue is autophases. <laughs> yeah, water vases was weird. Well, actually, no. When you don't know something and you look into it, and then in the context of the time or that, so, so again, we're talking strategies and approaches, like I'm describing strategies and approaches that you develop over time with disabilities and chronic illnesses, and where you have to consider these things. Tying this into the order vases. So, order vases at the time completely made sense. They're terrifying to me as a concept because the idea of having a glass thing next to you in a vehicle that's rather large and not designed to necessarily be shatterproof. Well, to, to uh, play devil's advocate, I don't think those things went over like 15 to 20 miles an hour. I mean, that's still speedy, but. I, I don't know. They were clunkers, man. They were big cars and fairly powerful engines for the time. I don't know. I think they, they got a little bit faster than that. But still, glass scares, scares me. The idea of like having a vase mm. that can, can fly out and lacerate you. Ah, nah. Sorry, guys. Even worse, it I'm was probably visual. crystal. Oh, yeah. Far out. But um, yeah, so the, the, the fact that they had autovases, though, at the time makes sense because like it's it's not like they had little air fresheners um that was the air freshener and there was sweat and smoke and battery acid and blah so i mean sure wake up and smell the roses so to speak yeah i i, I also don't know what the origin of that expression is and i want to look it up don't look up the expression kick the bucket i did the other day and and i wish i hadn't huh. yes. yeah we're not going to go into that story no, no, no. Um, but yeah, so we uh, the, the other thought I was having is, is another segue is that we, we, we met someone who basically thinks that scientists think too much and has zero confidence in their ability to grasp things and a few other things. Like she was – and the fact that she has – she's talking to her mum about the stuff that she was doing at work when – 
presuming that she's actually working for a research lab that also was involved with not not particularly the researcher but in an area where they research weapons amongst other things hmm. seems a bit unwise anyway but this is not brave new world this is not uh, 1984 where if you say the wrong thing you will suddenly disappear but you know yeah, yeah. i was actually mentioning i'm uh, to dave before the podcast this is one of the books i'm i'm enjoying this book not always understanding it but I'm enjoying it because it's kind of stimulating mm. and not in a horrifying abject. Way. Yeah. Not in an abject horror at the potential of humanity to get that dark way. Um, like 1984 brave new world. And, and, and also catch 22 did, although yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to know what happened in catch 22, but that was, that was, um, well, that's cause the whole thing was out of order. The whole <laughs> system is out of order. It's chaos. It's great. Yes. Yes. Um, well, hmm. let us uh, continue then with chapter 16, back to kindergarten. We climbed the four granite steps before the research laboratory. The building itself was of unadorned brick and rose six stories. We passed between two heavily armed guards at the entrance. Miss Pefko showed the guard on her left the pink confidential badge at the tip of her left breast. Dr. Breed showed the guard on our right the black top secret badge on his soft lapel. Ceremoniously, Dr. Breed put his arm around me without actually touching me, indicating to the guards that I was under his august protection and control. I smiled at one of the guards. He did not smile back. There was nothing funny about national security. <laughs> nothing at all. Dr. Breed, Miss Pefko, and I moved thoughtfully through the laboratory's grand foyer to the elevators. Ask Dr. Horvath to explain something sometime, said Dr. Breed to Miss Pefko. See if you don't get a nice, clear answer. You'd have to start back in the first grade, or maybe even kindergarten, she said. I missed a lot. We all missed a lot, Dr. Breed agreed. We'd all do well to start over again, preferably with kindergarten. All right, just a moment. This is a very Dr. Seussian kind of uh, moment there. The, the, you know, the, we're repeating the phrase and then rhyming. Dr. Breed agreed. Like, that's hilarious to me on, on some weird level. Okay. Pefko went Smefko? Now I can't think of it. <laughs> we watched the laboratory's receptionist turn on the many educational exhibits that lined the foyer's walls. The receptionist was a tall, thin girl, icy, pale. At her crisp touch, lights twinkled, wheels turned, flasks bubbled, bells rang. Magic, declared Miss Pefko. I'm sorry to hear a member of the laboratory family using that brackish medieval word, said Dr. Breed. Every one of those exhibits explains itself. They're designed so as not to be mystifying. They're the very antithesis of magic. The very what of magic? The exact opposite of magic. You couldn't prove it by me. Dr. Breed looked just a little peeved. Well, he said, we don't want to mystify. At least give us credit for that. That's actually a big thing in science. Uh, we had last, I think last um, episode, there was this, science communication is a whole thing. Like it's, it's a whole discipline, like to the point where there's now sp specialized education in it because it is, yeah, sci scientists suffer for, for there being um, a major communication gap or bridge um the skill set is part of it but also like it there's a lot of presumed 
a lot of assumed knowledge and understanding that you need to have prior to actually getting there. And then, of course, you get media distorting things. Is uh, if you if you have not yet, um, I can't remember the, the what was it? X XC XKCD. Thank you. So XKCD Comics um, has addressed this a few times, like the whole publishing and the publishing media cycle, uh, how that is a bit odd. This was a PhD comics, which is pretty funny. So they, they, they comment on these kind of odd distortions that can occur. And the problem is that funding is, is related to, I think we had a discussion on the whole mm. funding system. It, it's, it's yeah. The, the communication part, it's, it's funny because Dr. Breed saying we're, we're not like, we don't want to mystify. So well, no, but to quote Dr. Breed's quote, if you can't explain it in a way that a six-year-old understands it, then you're not actually competent. Well, and, and I think this may be a problem as well. It's it's the issue, I guess, I've observed in my life um, in yeah. that when I talk to people, I tend to always perceive them on my, exactly kind of on my intellectual yeah. level. Not that I think myself intellectual, just wherever I am. Uh, and when yeah. I'm talking to someone, I assume they're right there with me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I, I guess it doesn't help that because I have some form of ADD, ADHD, I'm, my brain, you know, goes off on tangents and comes back and expects people to be able to follow those leaps of daring do. Um, dear, dear podcast listeners, um, we, we in advance, uh, no, retroactively and in, in advance, acknowledge and recognize that this is something that we both do. But yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. pretty much most of my friend circle, it's I guess they've all been able to yeah. do that to some extent because they're all still my friends. I, if, if I was incomprehensible, uh, I don't think I'd have many people. <laughs> no, well, I think that's, that's actually a thing. We, it's a bit of a weird... Well, actually, this is tying back down to it. The fact that he's things like referring to like a laboratory family and whatnot scientists and researchers and and those kind of spaces not everyone's going to agree there'll be personality clashes there'll be ideological differences all that of course but people tend to self-select or the pool tends to self-select the same way with uh generally speaking it's a phenomenon not a phenomenon but it's an observation that's made by people who are autistic or have adhd or other uh, neurodiverse presentations we tend to self-select or we tend to be drawn to people with similar kind of ways of thinking and expressing. We might not agree in terms of ideologies and beliefs and whatnot, but at least the way of communicating or the way of processing, I guess, information is very similar. Hmm. Um, and, and that's interesting in in terms of, and when i'm saying processing information i'm talking about like in terms of human interaction into information not necessarily content uh, kind of the way we learn and stuff might be completely different but the way that we take cues from each other or how direct we speak usually tends to you tend to be attracted to that kind of bubble mm. whether neurodiverse or not i think that's probably a thing that being said it doesn't mean that you we can't have also things moments like where it was like, look, I'm not sure, but I'm feeling like I might've upset you somehow. Can you just let me know if I have, please do. So I think people with similar boundaries, similar approaches to interaction tend to be. Yeah. So I, I, I get what you mean. And I think that's, that's what happens in science as well. 
and that's what happens. It's happening. Well, that that was what I was getting at. I assume, yeah, yeah. when you're. Um, well, I don't know if if, if you. Uh, I think I see the problem. I was about to say, I, I would think if, let's say you worked, you know, you're you're like a doctor breed, you're like a direct a director for this large laboratory, you mm. know, you're, you're pretty much like in the bowels of science. Sorry for that mental picture. Uh, <laughs> what, what I, what I yeah. mean, you're kind of surrounded by scientists, you're, you're doing science yeah. every day. You, you can talk to any of your colleagues about what you're doing and they'll be able to uh, at least understand the basics or at least ask the right questions to un- understand what they don't understand if you follow where yeah. and because this this group he, obviously dr breed perceives everyone in this group this family as having the same aptitude he's mm-hmm. extending that circle towards even like the dictators this the, the secretaries you know miss pefko yeah. uh whereas she's just like Look, no, I'm just here to take dictation. I have no idea. I don't have a college degree. I and I think, yeah, he's getting annoyed because like, stop putting yourself down. Anybody can do this. And it's like, well, no. Yeah. I mean, with the right time and training and perseverance, yes, you could get Miss Pefko could get to that point if she ever had a desire to, but mm. who she is, maybe, yeah. That's that's furthest outside of anything she even wants to contemplate. Yeah, and I think that's this that that's the whole STEM only ideology that doesn't actually help us because if you don't have STEM plus humanities, you 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 get into trouble. Mm. That being said, uh, with with Doctor Breed, I think it's also because remember he referred to himself as the chief housekeeper. Mm-hmm. So usually those people who are say in charge of the administrative side of things. It's not that they're not familiar with the um, content. It's just that they they actually, unless they are proactive in getting familiar with all the stuff that's that and all the information that's coming out or the research that's coming out of their group, uh, they can be disconnected. They can sometimes not quite understand it, but they've got more of a. I guess you're right. Like they come from a background where they could probably figure it out if if they were provided the the sufficient information and content so that they can they've got the training to actually kind of process it usually mm. i say usually because yeah um <laughs> but yeah it's yeah I, I see what you mean like you, you don't it's not about talking down and i think that's the 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 point is that he he's a little yeah he sees them all as one kind of entity or one unit so so and it's he, almost like He's got a blind spot. He he's getting mad at her because he thinks she's just not trying. Whereas That's this this part could of it? Yeah. this could very much yeah be outside it, it's, her it's, scope. It's part well, of, it is outside. Yeah. yeah. And and it, and it, it that's going to be part of it, and there's also going to be part of it being well. Also, I mean, he's being interviewed by a writer, so he does. Mm-hmm. There's possibly the embarrassment side of things, but also this. We heard uh, previously that his commencement speech was basically every science would fix everything, so everyone needs to do science, 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 science. You're yeah, going, yeah. well, really? But I also, and, and also agreeing that the fact that Miss Pefko feels like she has absolutely no grounding or understanding is an indication of a deficit of at least foundational scientific understanding. Mm. Um, and that's probably also triggering off his frustration because that's the thing that he's passionate about is that everyone should have science. Well, she, you know, she just referred to it as magic, which, yeah, I can see yeah. how that would really rankle someone like him. 
Yeah, well, I mean, scientists, we, we, we occasionally just say it, but it's it's for fun. Um, <laughs> at least the, the science people that I hang out with, we just say, oh, magic, who knows? <laughs> but it's, 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 it's like, obviously not. Like, it's a joke. It's, it's, it's a, the human body is confusing and complicated and we're just slowly puzzling it out. But yes, there you go. Well, let us continue with Chapter 17, The Girl Pool. Dr. Breed's secretary was standing on her desk in his outer office tying an accordion-pleated Christmas bell to the ceiling fixture. Look here, Naomi, cried Dr. Breed. We've gone six months without a fatal accident. Don't you spoil it by falling off the desk. Miss Naomi Faust was a merry, desiccated old lady. I suppose she had served Dr. Breed for almost all his life, and her life too. She laughed. I'm indestructible, and even if I did fall, Christmas angels would catch me. They've been known to miss. Two paper tendrils, also accordion pleated, hung down from the clapper of the bell. Miss Faust pulled one. It unfolded stickily and became a long banner with a message written on it. Here, said Miss Faust, handing the free end to Dr. Breed. Pull it the rest of the way and tack the end to the bulletin board. Dr. Breed obeyed, stepping back to read the banner's message. Peace on earth, he read out loud heartily. Miss Faust stepped down from her desk with the other tendril, unfolding it. Goodwill toward men, the other tendril said. By golly, chuckled Dr. Breed. They've dehydrated Christmas. The place looks festive, very festive. And I remembered the chocolate bars for the girl pool too, she said. Aren't you proud of me? Dr. Breed touched his forehead, dismayed by his forgetfulness. Thank God for that. It slipped my mind. We mustn't ever forget that, said Miss Faust. It's a tradition now. Dr. Breed and his chocolate bars for the girl pool at Christmas. She explained to me that the girl pool was the typing bureau in the laboratory's basement. The girls belonged to anybody with access to a dictaphone. Um, let's have a moment there. So we've got an ancient secretary. I'm just kind of looking at it going, okay. It's it's funny that he he had issues with the, the use of the term magic, which I guess for the science education display, fair, that is frustrating. But then talks about... Like, she's like going, well, if I fall, Christmas angels would catch me, and they've been known to miss. I'm like, okay. He's okay with that. He's got humor. I think I think it's because of familiarity. They've obviously had a long and tenured relationship, these two. Yes, which, which makes sense. Which, that yeah, that makes sense. And then I love how he's just, he just blindingly obeys her in terms of the, the here, hang this. It's like, okay. <laughs> and... And yes, uh, I'm sure we're about to, like the the irony of the same research laboratory that is responsible for the atomic bomb having peace on earth. I picked that up too. Yeah. And goodwill to men. I'm trying to figure out what they've dehydrated Christmas would mean. It's like, is it as in it's concentrated or as in it's distilled in paper? I am a bit confused by that. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. Okay, yeah, that's a bit odd. But yes, yes. I'll continue. Yes. All year long, she said, the girls of the girl pool listened to the faceless voices of scientists on dictaphone records, records brought in by male girls. Once a year, the girls left their cloister of cement block to go a-caroling to get their chocolate bars from Dr. Asa Breed. They serve science, too, Dr. Breed testified, even though they may not understand a word of it. God bless them, everyone. Well, he's he's obviously got patience for uh, the girls in the girl pool, just not uh, Miss Pefko. Well, no, he. I think he does. I think he's just, just 
there was probably the fact that she used said magic and was just a bit bit yeah rubbed rubbed in the wrong way but also this whole um you scientists think too much kind of thing that might have also been it was an mm-hmm. accumulation of sentences but the 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 funny thing is this sentence is just weird like i remember the chocolate bars for the girl pool and then we mustn't forget it's a tradition now dr breed and his chocolate bars for the girl pool it's a bit i don't know i mean could be innocuous could be completely innocent but it's a little creepy okay that, that just there's something about this whole idea of the girls belong to anyone with access to a dictaphone that creeped me out a little <laughs> that's Might not a good reading... sentence no i mean look maybe i'm reading things that aren't there but the fact that they go at caroling to get their chocolate bars from a- dr Asa, it just something about this is a bit uh, yeah. well. and also his interest in the young lady but then not really interacting with the lady who looked maybe a bit dour or like se- severe you know the severe looking lady and like i don't know i don't know just something about him is a bit uh. yeah yes yes chapter 18 the most valuable commodity on earth when we got into Dr. Breed's inner office, I attempted to put my thoughts in order for a sensible interview. I found that my mental health had not improved, and when I started to ask Dr. Breed questions about the day of the bomb, I found that the public relations centers of my brain had been suffocated by booze and burning cat fur. Every question I asked implied that the creators of the atomic bomb had been criminal accessories to murder most foul. Dr. Breed was astonished, and then he got very sore. He drew back from me and he grumbled, I gather you don't like scientists very much. I wouldn't say that, sir. All your questions seem aimed at getting me to admit that scientists are heartless, conscienceless, narrow boobies, indifferent to the fate of the rest of the human race, or maybe not really members of the human race at all. That's putting it pretty strong. No stronger than what you're going to put in your book, apparently. I thought that what you were after was a fair, objective biography of Felix Hoynaker, certainly as significant a task as a young writer could assign himself in this day and age. But no, you come here with preconceived notions about mad scientists. Where did you ever get such ideas? From the funny papers? From Dr. Hoynaker's son, to name one source. Which son? Newton, I said. I had little Newt's letter with me, and I showed it to him. How small is Newt, by the way? No bigger than an umbrella stand, said Dr. Breed, reading Newt's letter and frowning. The other two children are normal? Of course. I hate to disappoint you, but scientists have children just like anybody else's children. I did my best to calm down Dr. Breed, to convince him that I was really interested in an accurate portrait of Dr. Hoynaker. I've come here with no other purpose than to set down exactly what you tell me about Dr. Hoynaker. Newt's letter was just a beginning, and I'll balance off against it whatever you can tell me. I'm sick of people misunderstanding what a scientist is, what a scientist does. I'll do my best to clear up the misunderstanding. In this country, most people don't even understand what pure research is. I'd appreciate it if you'd tell me what it is. It isn't looking for a better cigarette filter or a softer face tissue or a longer-lasting house paint. God help us. Everybody talks about research and practically nobody in this country is doing it. We're one of the few companies that actually hires men to do pure research. When most other companies brag about their research, they're talking about industrial hack technicians who wear white coats, work out of cookbooks, and dream up an improved windshield wiper for next year's Oldsmobile. But here? Here, and shockingly few other places in this country, men are paid to increase knowledge and work toward no end but that. 
That's very generous of General Forge and Foundry Company. Nothing generous about it. New knowledge is the most valuable commodity on earth. The more truth we have to work with, the richer we become. Had I been a Baconianist then, that statement would have made me howl. Um, yeah. I just, this is so weird. I was just thinking, I wonder if he was influenced by the conversation he heard about the Dr. Breed's son coming in and actually basically quitting because he didn't want to be involved. Like, that that, that the son saw himself that the, themselves that way? Oh, that would be a sore point for Dr. Breed, and I guarantee that's part of why he's so defensive about what science is. Mm. But also, the there is a disconnect. Like I said, this is someone who we know is stem, 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 all the way stem. Mm. But when you don't think about the humanities aspect. Mm. It's interesting that he's not listening as well. When he's like, I'm just here to write whatever like you tell me. He's like, nope. Like, mm. Doesn't explain it. Doesn't explain really what pure research is by his definition. Which is a whole... <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's a little bit like when people say, say real scientists, I'm like, oh, mm. uh, but uh, um, just, just from that little tirade, I'm going to call it, I get the feeling, you know, he thinks of most science in America as just furthering consumerism and capitalism. The yeah, idea just, of well, uh, just technical skill, technical refinement, which is a form of research anyway, but, um, technical refinement and adjustment and methodologies are all still parts of research. He, what he's talking about is this concept of pure research, which is also similar to blue sky research, where you just kind of go, oh, I wonder what if, and then, and that matches the kind of things that we were hearing about Dr. Hernicke's, like Hernicke, like this, his, his whole jumping from one topic to another topic to another topic, just because he suddenly has a question. That's, that's about right. Like some of the folks who are like that, that he had to be kind of channeled into focusing on his work. So that's about right. I love how the, he's like, if I had been a Baconist, I, I, I would have laughed my head off. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure. Like, I guess as a Baconist, the idea that there's this almost this, well, we never really know things like nothing that it's, there are things out of our control kind of thing. Well, no, what he's laughing in direct response to, I, I got the line here is the more truth we have to work with, the richer we become. Yeah, and then we know that with Baconis, they're just like, look, nothing's really real. Like, nothing's really true. Um, and But we're deceiving ourselves to think that we actually understand what's going on. Which is a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little, little, little out of... It's a little bit... Ah, haha. Yeah, it's a little crazy sometimes. But I mean, yes and no. I, I don't disagree, actually, with some of it. But, yeah, I don't know. Knowledge, yes. Truth, eh. Because knowledge is not always equal truth. I think that's, I guess, there's a bit of a weird philosophical split there. When is it truth? When is it knowledge? When is it understanding? When is it insight? When is it wisdom? Does, well, you've, you've what, fried my brain. I know. It's like, when is it actually, because the thing is, we're just assuming that knowledge is truth is very, very simplistic. Knowledge allows us to explore truth, I guess, or try and approximate it, it's the reality one, it, of things. The way I see it is, it, it's knowledge is always one step closer because I am a. We've had that conversation about how yeah. I feel like you know we could be 
on the verge of scientific discovery. You know, sorry, we could be making great scientific leaps and bounds for another billion years, and we will yeah. we will be no closer to like uncovering everything, knowing all of the secrets yeah. of the universe. And- there's yeah, that, that there's an infinite amount of things that we could be discovering, and also that truth, like our concept of truth, is I guess relative to the knowledge that we have. Yes. And, and maybe that, maybe it's relative yeah. to the person as well. Oh yeah, but that's that because the the person that we are also determines our understanding of the knowledge that we we are and and the what knowledge we are actually able to access. So yeah, it's it, it's it's a whole thing. Like it, it and and then I like to look at things also in the context of reality, because truth and reality are slightly different. But reality is, the, I guess, the truth in action. It's just that it's how we perceive it at any given time. Anyway, it's a whole. Uh, that, that's <laughs> tough for me because uh, I tend to be in the camp where I, I don't want to declare it, but I have this strange feeling that reality is no more than shared perception. Yeah, but that's what it is. It's perception of the truth. So truth is a thing. So say, say truth were static, which truth as we do, like truth i guess big capital t truth is going to differ to small truth so i guess because yeah. that's the truth that is relative to the knowledge that we have well if you think of like truth as this ultimate shining beacon on a hill that we're constantly working towards i i almost see no difference between capital t truth and capital g god because it seems so far outside yes. of our understanding yeah, it's it's something that we never really truly. <laughs> sorry, that was not intended. There's some something that is that is infinite and beyond our grasp. But it's that we constantly try and work towards greater understanding based on the knowledge that we accumulate. And reality is, I guess, how we how that all comes together. It's like reality is how we're ex- what we're exploring the process of that what we're actually exploring as we are getting closer and closer to or working towards truth i guess because that's a perception thing because yeah very much a perception thing and it's also very context dependent very individual and context and messy reality is a bit more messy so i like that yeah but yeah so it's i can see why as a baconist he would he would laugh because is it (laughs) well not to give too much away but knowing the book there, there is added subtext to that barb. I, I actually, yeah, it'll be funny at the end to kind of hopefully I can recall like this and some other moments and bring them back to you. And, yeah. you know, we can have a discussion. Oh, I, I kind of see what the whole book is really about. But the fact that at the beginning in the in the pre-quote, it was referring to things not being like something about lies and, and stuff like that. So, okay, yeah, it, it seems to be like a different way of a different relationship to truth and knowledge, I guess, is how that's as far as I've understood it. Well, well, you know, just already with his son and even his Dr. Breed's defensive posture here, plus the fact that our our yeah. narrator is writing a book about what people were doing the day the atomic bomb was dropped. You know, there is this undercurrent of science is dangerous. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting because the way that Dr. Breed even outlines it well yes 
because there's that there's there's it's not that all scientists are like this and that's that's a disservice but this idea of heartless consciousness narrow boobies indifferent to the fate of the rest of the human race or perhaps not even re- members of the human race at that part is just that's weird um but yeah so so they see themselves as different and isolated and and whatever and completely distorted yeah so, so it's it's misunderstanding of what a scientist is what a scientist does and, and it's 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 i mean it's, it's a topic that actually is it's still current it's constantly mm-hmm. current that oh they've got an agenda and this is why they do it and blah 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 and you're going no some people are like that pure scientist and they just want to understand how things work and then other people want to understand how things work but they're thinking about the impact of what they're looking at and then some people are just in it to make a quick buck oh for sure but and 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 they some are just there for the the i guess quote unquote prestige but i mean if you're in it for money and science most spaces are they are not well i mean in my mind that that's okay this is going to sound really weird saying that that's where the danger lies because these pure scientists he's talking about his own company is where Heunecker worked on the atom bomb yes but but like in my mind what I'm thinking of like charlatans using science for like fame and money and power I'm thinking of the um that guy who kicked off the whole anti-vax crusade in the 90s with his Bogus paper. Uh, Wakefield. Yeah, yeah. That, and that mm. was, yeah, and that was because there was someone who, sorry for this. He wanted to sell his own vaccines. Yes, exactly. So there's, there's, there, and that's manipulation of, of things. And, yeah. and often that's, um, and that's a, that's a thing. But the whole idea of when we don't have an Einstein every year, like we're not going to, people often don't know who invented what or, who contribute they don't know the name of the person who first suggested rna vaccines mm. they might know some names here and there like watson and crick maybe because they remember them being mentioned in in school or they might remember yeah. marie curie but the names of like scientists are not the it's not like it's a fame and glory kind of position really not really there might be some respect and there might be a little bit of, you know, uh, the reaction of, oh, you must be really smart. It's like, no, this just happens to be my area of interest and passion, much like you have areas of interest and passion. But then more likely we have situations where people say, oh, real scientists and real scientists this and real scientists that, much like Dr. Breed is doing here with the, oh, but real research, true research, pure research. And that's really, mm, he's contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I phrase it. Yeah, he's yeah. definitely contributing. Okay, well, let, I want to do at least one more today. Yes, yes, yes. Chapter 19, No More Mud. Do you mean, I said to Dr. Breed, that nobody in this laboratory is ever told what to work on? Nobody even suggests what they work on? People suggest things all the time, but it isn't in the nature of a pure research man to pay any attention to suggestions. His head is full of projects of his own, and that's the way we want it. Did anybody ever try to suggest projects to Dr. Heunecker? Certainly, admirals and generals in particular. They looked upon him as a sort of magician who could make America invincible with a wave of his wand. They brought all kinds of crackpot schemes up here, still do. The only thing wrong with the schemes is that, given our present state of knowledge, the schemes won't work. Scientists on the order of Dr. Heunecker are supposed to fill the little gaps. I remember shortly before Felix died, 
there was a Marine general who was hounding him to do something about mud. Mud? The Marines, after almost 200 years of wallowing in mud, were sick of it, said Dr. Reed. The general, as their spokesman, felt that one of the aspects of progress should be that Marines no longer had to fight in mud. What did the general have in mind? The absence of mud. No more mud. <laughs> I suppose, I theorized, it might be possible with mountains of some sort of chemical or tons of some sort of machinery. What the general had in mind was a little pill or a little machine. Not only were the Marines sick of mud, they were sick of carrying cumbersome objects. They wanted something little to carry for a change. What did Dr. Hoynaker say? In his playful way, and all his ways were playful, Felix suggested that there might be a single grain of something, even a microscopic grain, that could make infinite expanses of muck, marsh, swamp, creeks, pools, quicksand, and mire as solid as this desk. Dr. Breed banged his speckled old fist on the desk. The desk was a kidney-shaped sea-green steel affair. One Marine could carry more than enough of the stuff to free an armored division bogged down in the Everglades. According to Felix, one Marine could carry enough of the stuff to do under the nail of his little finger. That's impossible. You would say so. I would say so. Practically everybody would say so. To Felix, in his playful way, it was entirely possible. The miracle of Felix, and I sincerely hope you'll put this in your book somewhere, was that he always approached old puzzles as though they were brand new. I feel like Francine Pefko now, I said, and all the girls in the girl pool, too. Dr. Hoynaker could never have explained to me how something that could be carried under a fingernail could make a swamp as solid as your desk. I told you what a good explainer Felix was, even so. He was able to explain it to me, said Dr. Breed, and I'm sure I can explain it to you. The puzzle is how to get Marines out of the mud, right? Right. All right, said Dr. Reed. Listen carefully. Here we go. Well, we're not stopping here. <laughs> no, no. Continue, continue. Chapter 20, Ice Nine. There are several ways, Dr. Breed said to me, in which certain liquids can crystallize, can freeze, several ways in which their atoms can stack and lock in an orderly, rigid way. That old man with spotted hands invited me to think of the several ways in which cannonballs might be stacked on a courthouse lawn, of the several ways in which oranges might be packed into a crate. So it is with atoms and crystals too, and two different crystals of the same substance can have quite different physical properties. He told me about a factory that had been growing big crystals of ethylene diamine tartrate. The crystals were useful in certain manufacturing operations, he said, but one day the factory discovered that the crystals it was growing no longer had the properties desired. The atoms had begun to stack and lock, to freeze in a different fashion. The liquid that was crystallizing hadn't changed, but the crystals it was forming were, as far as industrial applications went, pure junk. How this had come about was a mystery. The theoretical villain, however, was what Dr. Breed called a seed. He meant by that a tiny grain of the undesired crystal pattern. The seed, which had come from God only knows where, taught the atoms the novel way in which to stack and lock, to crystallize, to freeze. Now, think about cannonballs on a courthouse lawn or about oranges in a crate again, he suggested. And he helped me to see that the pattern of the bottom layer of cannonballs or of oranges determined how each subsequent layer would stack and lock. The bottom layer is the seed of how every cannonball or every orange that comes after is going to behave, even to an infinite number of cannonballs or oranges. Now suppose, chortled Dr. Breed, enjoying himself, that there were many possible ways in which water could crystallize, could freeze. 
Suppose that the sort of ice we skate upon and put into highballs, what we might call ice one, is only one of several types of ice. Suppose water always froze as ice one on Earth because it had never had a seed to teach it how to form ice two, ice three, ice four. And suppose, he rapped on his desk with his old hand again, that there were one form, which we would call ice nine, a crystal as hard as this desk with a melting point of, let us say, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or better still, a melting point of 130 degrees. All right, I'm still with you, I said. Dr. Breed was interrupted by whispers in his outer office, whispers loud and portentous. They were the sounds of the girl pool. The girls were preparing to sing in the outer office. And they did sing, as Dr. Breed and I appeared in the doorway. Each of about a hundred girls had made herself into a choir girl by putting on a collar of white bond paper secured by a paperclip. They sang beautifully. I was surprised and mockishly heartbroken. I am always moved by the seldom-used treasure, the sweetness with which most girls can sing. The girls sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I am not likely to forget very soon their interpretation of the line, The hopes and fears of all the years are here with us tonight. Shall I continue? I think he's going to continue think, on his explanation. Yeah, I think we need, to, we need to understand what's happened here. Yes. I have a general idea of what he's trying to say, but yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not going to cut you off this week, folks. <laughs> Chapter 21, The Marines March On. When old Dr. Breed, with the help of Miss Faust, had passed out the Christmas chocolate bars to the girls, we returned to his office. There, he said to me, where were we? Oh, yes. And that old man asked me to think of United States Marines in a godforsaken swamp. Their trucks and tanks and howitzers are wallowing, he complained, sinking in stinking miasma and ooze. He raised a finger and winked at me, but suppose, young man, that one marine had with him a tiny capsule containing a seed of ice nine, a new way for the atoms of water to stack and lock, to freeze. If that marine threw that seed into the nearest puddle, the puddle would freeze, I guessed, and all the muck around the puddle, it would freeze, and all the puddles in the frozen muck, they would freeze, and the pools and the streams in the frozen muck. They would freeze? You bet they would, he cried, and the United States Marines would rise from the swamp and march on. I'll continue. Yeah, that's Chat. not a good idea, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chapter 22, Member of the Yellow Press. There is such stuff, I asked. No, 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 said Dr. Breed, losing patience with me again. I only told you all this in order to give you some insight into the extraordinary novelty of the ways in which Felix was likely to approach an old problem. What I've just told you is what he told the Marine General who was hounding him about mud. Felix ate alone here in the cafeteria every day. It was a rule that no one was to sit with him to interrupt his chain of thought. But the Marine General barged in, pulled up a chair, and started talking about mud. What I've told you was Felix's offhand reply. There really isn't such a thing. I just told you there wasn't, cried Dr. Breed hotly. Felix died shortly after that. And if you'd been listening to what I've been trying to tell you about pure research men, you wouldn't ask such a question. Pure research men work on what fascinates them, not on what fascinates other people. I keep thinking about that swamp. You can stop thinking about it. I've made the only point I wanted to make with the swamp. If the streams flowing through the swamp froze as ice nine, what about the rivers and lakes the streams fed? They'd freeze, but there is no such thing as ice nine. And the oceans the frozen rivers fed? They'd freeze, of course, he snapped. I suppose you're going to rush to market with a sensational story about ice nine now. I tell you again, it does not exist. 
and the springs feeding the frozen lakes and streams, and all the water underground feeding the springs. They'd freeze, damn it, he cried. But if I had known that you were a member of the Yellow Press, he said grandly, rising to his feet, I wouldn't have wasted a minute with you. And the rain, when it fell, it would freeze into hard little hobnails of ice nine, and that would be the end of the world, and the end of the interview, too. Goodbye. Okay. Sorry, I just had to look up what yellow journalism was. Oh, you weren't aware. No, so it's like scandal mongering yeah. and sensationalism and just National Enquirer or um, uh, probably the uh, the the first example I remember was uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, mm. He his papers were known as yellow journalism. I think originally it was the idea of putting bias in your reporting. Yeah, but also the idea of not well researched, which is hilarious now to me. But I'm not going to say anything further than that. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, but so uh, yeah. We got our explanation of what Ice Nine is, or at least how yes. Ho- Doctor Hoynaker's um, how how his mind works a little. Yeah, like he's talking about theoretically and possibly, and if this concept because this concept could exist, and based on that, yeah, and and it's really funny because. Yeah, the pure researcher is not necessarily talking about something that is a, an actual thing that is going to happen in reality. It's just like, oh, well, yeah, theoretically, if you have some sort of atomic arrangement, it just takes a slightly different a novel atomic arrangement to trigger off uh, arrangement of other molecules to have a similar atomic ar- arrangement, so on and so forth. In co- theoretically, yeah. But yes, the, the fact that the... Um, author themselves kind of went but but what if but if it was a thing but what if but what if but what if so it continued like but then but then but then and and i think that's the difference that pure science isn't necessarily thinking about the realities of the situation they're just looking at the question yeah they're not even the offhand way which dr breed is like yes yes it would lead to the end of the world now go away yeah, it's like you're not understanding because he he's upset. He was like, "Oh, you're going to be biased about scientists." Like, I, but no, he's just like even that theoretical thing, that theoretical scenario. He's like, no, but it was just a theoretical scenario. It's like, oh, and not getting it, not getting continuing. But if, but if, and and I think that's um, yeah. I like the fact that it's like you, the, the the general was not meant. No one was meant to interrupt Felix. It's, it, it disrupted his stream of thought, and the offhand response from Felix was that. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was uh, smart and messy and yeah. Re- so he was pure research. He was pure pure research. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he was like thinking about the realities of what that would actually mean in terms of. Like, so I think what Doctor Breed's son was saying is like no matter what you do, even if you have the best of intentions when you're doing the science, is what what it gets used for. So I guess the comment that we're getting through this is not so much. It's not that the scientists are the issue. The problem is the scientists don't think about the potential application and use of their work. Mm. It, in, in this context, this is not a universal thing, not all sci- hashtag not all scientists, but uh, that this is uh, the concern that the, the sun had, which was that, you know, even though the intent was not necessarily the destruction of humanity, that that is the potential outcome because of the way that it gets used through military and, and other... Mm. Um, powers so to speak so yeah it's it's um and it's interesting because the the authors kind of going but yeah but what if but what if 
Whereas Dr. Bree's like, oh, look, it was just the idea. But, you know, to take a step back, I mean, technically, and I, I don't have a good footing in this, but wasn't the whole atom bomb basically the idea of splitting an atom in the first place? Yep. And the question was, is it is a potential energy source? The idea was energy source and understanding the physics and stuff behind it. And then it was like, oh, well, we could use this as a, as a, like, it could be a weapon. I mean, Einstein was one of the big things that Einstein was worried about is, is the things that he was contributing towards actually being used as weapons. Hmm. And yeah, there were a few scientists who did actually have those concerns and that's why they would try and avoid being involved at all in, in these spaces. But even, even indirectly, uh, we've had this actually in Australia where we had someone um, in, this is back when we actually funded our CSIRR. Oh, that was a bit dark. Back when we adequately funded certain areas. Australia's got a really bad record when it comes to funding um, research right now. It has for the last 15, 20 years now. But even on our shoestring budget, someone pointed, found out that they accidentally, basically they accidentally made a, a, a flu virus more dangerous. Oh, lovely. And they, they, and it had to do with um, bacterial gene, and it, it's something that could happen in nature as well. And they realized it after they'd done it, like, oh, oh, that's not good. The the idea of uh, bacterial genetic, um, something to do with bacterial genetics and viral genetics, kind of doing a dosey do. This is my very, very. <laughs> okay stuff going on there i remember reading it at the time and going oh that's that's really not good and the way that they had to publish it at the time they had to be very careful with how they published it because from a research point of view yeah you'd want to publish it and now i mean in in america the laws now that anything that is funded through taxpayers funding has to be published and accessible mm. there are some I would assume there will be some notable exceptions, that being, for example, anything that is potentially uh, about uh, increasing the virulence or the danger, like making things more dangerous. I suspect that might be classified or at least restricted. Um, As that's military research, I imagine. Yes. So there's certain things that would be probably restricted. But the thing is that we have that situation where their research could be then used and it, and still could be used this australian group to make things more dangerous and even though on paper many like most of the world agrees to not use because of the the way that there are agreements amongst like through the united nations and whatnot that they don't use biological weapons however there are other agreements that we've got that also people aren't that governments are not necessarily being respectful of so it's mm. it's a real tough spot because us understanding factors that contribute to virulence and whatnot is important hmm. but this then being exploited and used and weaponized yeah. is dangerous and chances are that those discoveries will happen either way and possibly through other nefarious means and so it's like it's a real yeah, it's a it's a really tough tough spot to be in, and then of course there's the mountains of research and information that aren't actually used in terms of healthcare, and then things assumptions that are made like okay, a paper comes out says osteoarthritis is improved if you have if you do exercise and and have good diet, it improves uh, a certain proportion of people with osteoarthritis. That's great, fantastic. But the problem is that when you then promote that in a in a um, press kind of way, it's 
it just gets blanket applied and then insurance mm. uses it to deny procedures that might be necessary for a particular individual's situation and outcome. We do this blanket statements, blanket approaches without nuance, without... So there's the, the, the whole idea of iatrogenic harm. Oh, if you don't have this, this presentation, then you couldn't possibly have this condition. Or these conditions are rare because the data that we are basing it on says that it's rare. But then the reality is that it's underdiagnosed or undermeasured or poorly diagnosed or so that hmm. there's always there's there's harm even with the best intentions. So you have to always we need to train ethical um, framing for our research always. And it's it's a priority for a lot of like it's a key component of almost all postgraduate studies but what it means in terms of people's realities, back to reality, yeah, it can get abused. Like insurance companies might not want to pay for things. They, of course, want to make the most savings, money, profits that they can. So, of course, it's in their interest to deny things. And if they can use something to justify that, mm -hmm. even if it's not technically applicable, but the bare bones are. So, you know, that happens all the time. Man, just ask diabetics. It's it's. Uh, it's pretty bad. Mm. There's some rough things, but I mean, it doesn't shouldn't stop us from wanting to figure things out. That's mm. the that's the challenging bit. So where do we draw the line? I like this book. It's really um, like it makes you think about it as well, which is good. I like. I like. Sorry. There's um there's a game I made a video on uh, last year called uh, Nine Hours Nine Persons Nine Doors. It's a science fiction work as well. It uses. Uh, its main idea is called the morphogenetic field theory, the idea that um, we have like a collective unconscious, you know, that we share. So so a, a really simple explanation of it would be like if you know, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle, if I waited till like the end of the day to do them, mo more people in the world would have already completed the puzzle. So all those answers would be out there in the morphogenetic field and the collective unconscious, would, which would make it easier for me to complete the puzzle. Okay. As This as a science fiction basis of a sci-fi story, right? Yeah. But the cool thing is to explain this idea, they use the example of Ice-9 and the idea of... Uh, one, one, because if you remember the what he started off his explanation of Einstein by talking about a, a certain mineral that somehow its atomic structure changed and the mineral became useless for its purpose. Uh, now in this story, in the, not in the game nine nine nine, they um, they talk about how the mineral all over the world, no matter where it was, suddenly they all change immediately because. When yeah. one when one's atomic structure changed through the morphogenetic the morphogenetic field, everything shifted, mm. and suddenly that mineral was completely useless for uh, its its industrial purpose. Mm. So, but but it's really cool that you know because um, when I'd first played the game um, back in two thousand and twelve, yeah, mm. I had not read Cat's Cradle. So like the morphogenetic field theory, it's a really cool sci-fi concept, but basing it off the idea of Ice-9, I'm like, oh, that sounds wild. And then I'd forgotten about it when I read Cat's Cradle, but then when I replayed the game for the video last year, I'm like, oh yeah, Ice-9, <laughs> I know where that's from. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. And that, it, like, it's, it's, I like that it, when, when, like, literature kind of meets video games, because they allow you to explore these concepts a lot better and that's a really 
it's a really cool example. And yeah, Einstein, let's not let's not wish that one into existence, please. Thank you very much. No, it's terrifying. Uh, nope, 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 nope. We like our water, even though we're having other difficulties with our water right now. Um, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. But uh, <laughs> I think we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, you, you know, I wanted to get through those chapters on what Einstein was before we stopped. Yes. And, and, and I think that's the end of the uh, interview with Dr. Breed as well, because I, I quickly looked at the first couple sentences of the next chapter. And yeah, it, it looks like we're moving on. So that, that's good. We're, we're done with Dr. Breed, at least for the time being. Yeah, he did that. That that did not end well as a conversation goes. No, but, he, you know, he keeps. I mean, he was really misconstruing what was going on. I mean, at the end, yes, the the narrator was kind of doggedly fixated on how horrifying Einstein is as a concept and wouldn't yeah. let it go because of the ramifications of what that would mean. But still, he, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could have the, that could have gone better. <laughs> ironically, I don't think Doctor Reed is a good communicator. Which is hilarious on on many levels. Oh, uh, he, here's a question I want to ask. I, mm. I don't know what purpose it serves, but what did you think about that little aside where half in between, in the middle of the explanation of Ice Nine, they went out into the girl pool because they were singing for their chocolate. That was really random. And maybe also, just to have that that line from the little town of Bethlehem. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was like a, it was it was odd to have it that order like that sequence like i found that odd I, I i will say that was that was a little bit weird to 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 do uh i i, I don't know <laughs> like i didn't i don't know what i thought about it It was just a bit strange to to disrupt it like that but i think it made sense from a um a kind of i guess breaking that train of thought and then well, then emphasizing that whole is like what could be and what would be in that kind of conversation. So yes, yes, that was that was. I, I guess there's also a fun juxtaposition about the idea that his office is celebrating Christmas, which is supposed to be you know a, a holiday around love and peace and family and all the good in the world. And <laughs> yeah, and then uh, contrasting with uh, mm -hmm. uh, this whole. Oh no, scientists are not cold-hearted and they think about things and it's okay. Like, Let me describe this horrifying hypothetical scenario that someone just came up with on the fly. <laughs> to, to, to get rid of a, of a general, it would seem. Yes. Although, um, although well, to, get, to to solve a, something that was bothering a military invasive uh, invasion force. That that's something I want to ask you about. It. Well, look, we're going long, but I, I kind of want to get this sequence done with, so you know we don't yeah. have to return yes, to yes, it. Yes, yes. He before he launched into that, into that whole explanation, he talked about that's how Felix worked, how Doctor Hoynaker worked. He would. Yeah. attack old problems like they were new problems. I didn't quite fully understand that myself because it just felt like he was he was just approaching the problem of Marines get stuck in muck in a very novel, weird, outside-the-box way. Yeah, but I think that's also the point. Like The point was that he, he addressed things from, from a different perspective. 
And that is often how, um, I mean, that's how science generally, I mean, whether this is pure research or not, that's the whole point, I think, uh, of science is to address things from different perspectives, even if it's ongoing questions, like, like, why do bone fractures hurt? Okay, why do bone fractures hurt? Let's, let's expand that question. Why do they hurt? As in, whilst they, when they happen? Or whilst you're recovering from them? Or why does, does bone cause pain? Why does it hurt for some people, but not for everyone? Why can some people walk on a fracture when they've like you know they had an accident? Why do some people so, so you can you can expand the uh, untie it and for some it's like well the the basic answer would be okay well there's nerves involved in bone it's highly innervated okay yeah why is it that it hurts more for some people and not for others oh okay well that seems to be maybe shock or maybe there's variations in pain perception then you suddenly start digging it it it, it so you well, can it, either it, it just... yeah. It just seems such a different idea with, I want the Marines to stop getting stuck in mud. Hmm, what if I could change the atomic structure of muck so that every every liquid it touched instantly froze? Well, the sequence of thought would have been, okay, you want to get rid of mud. All mud? All mud. Never want to deal with mud. Okay, if you want to get rid of all mud, what makes mud mud and mud solid ground is water. Hmm. So how do you make we we water we shift the atomic structure of water to make yeah, it solid? Well, no, the thing is we we know that water when it's a solid is ice and ice forms under these conditions and this kind of way, right? But if we what if we had a different uh if it if ice was formed or water formed into ice crystals under different conditions. So what if we had one form of ice that forms under different conditions but then all the other but you'd need to have all the other molecules of ice also form in that condition. So that you need to change the way so the solution was you need to change the way that water behaves as uh, how water becomes a solid. So you have to change the properties of water. Um, so the the in terms of the material properties, the change the changing of um, from a liquid to a solid, we need to change that property, the material properties of, of water. And then suddenly it's it's that's the solution. And like, how do you get there? Okay, well there's there's got to be a way. There's got to be somewhere in the universe there will be a version of water that exists with slightly different properties somewhere, a molecule of it. I, I, I will say one thing I did really like about that was you know early on in that explanation, the narrator said that's impossible and he goes uh, Felix didn't think like that no because it's, it's not that it's impossible it's that it's improbable <laughs> yeah well, well just I, 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 I do really like that idea because it does feel like especially I guess as a researcher if if you're interested in something but your first thought in, when thinking a thought is that's impossible you've almost like cut off your your chain of inquiry right there mm-hmm and it, it, it's a uh, you, that's not how yeah and that's not how a hypothetical i mean th- that was basically how it, it it's demonstrating the way he's saying he took something that was in theory so ice forms under these conditions so the only way that you go from water so it, does that make sense like the sequence of thought yeah, yeah no, no you you explained it's, it perfectly logically in the in a yeah. chain so then of course the next question is how do we get how would you have circumstances where it changes oh well it's that one time that they had a, a batch of this mineral where it didn't behave that they it, it should behave because it was just a slightly different uh, arrangement of the mineral and so it behaved differently 
okay, different formation. So it's, it's suddenly like this this um, concept. We have this also with like super cooling, like pr the way that we treat materials, like when we create super cooling. You know when you put a, a glass of water in the microwave? Have you? I don't ever think seen... I've ever done that. Well, I mean, okay, I've, I've done that for tea and coffee, but... When you have a kettle, we are kettle people. But yeah, that is true. Um, but that's something that happens that people, if you superheat the water in the microwave, like folks can look this up on Crash Course Chemistry, I'm sure it's out there, but this idea that you can get the water and it'll be fine and it'll be a liquid and it'll be boiling and then suddenly it explodes because it's hit a point where it instantaneously goes from a liquid to a, a gas. Uh, you know, to, to, to link it back to our conversation about uh, physio earlier, when you move too quickly, that's when bad things happen. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. But like that kind of idea that there's suddenly... Uh, it's suddenly a shift in 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 mm. our I guess understanding uh, in, in a way, uh, or a sh shift in the state of matter, and that can happen. It's just that the circumstances that are required for that to happen are rare, mm. uh, and yeah, things like that. So yeah, that idea being a but what if, but what if, but what if, and it's funny because it's the what if in a tech in the technical sense, in the property of the molecule sense. And the fact that Dr. Breed understands in concept, oh, well, yeah, that would cause global devastation. But his relationship with that statement or that concept is disconnected. And the same, that would have been what Felix would have been like as well. Like, oh, well, then then we'd have that problem around the world. Yeah, suddenly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's so a good thing it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's fa it's a fascinating kind of approaching and yeah theoretical uh, or quote unquote what, what what he's referring to as pure research uh, doesn't always think about the implications so yeah hmm. oh any more thoughts about today's uh, chapters no I'm I'm like I've hit that point of oof um, but yeah it's a lot to process in terms of like we're getting a more we're getting more insight i guess into what he was navigating as a as a the way his mind was being challenged by just even exploring this topic oh sorry um i i, I know uh we've been pushing this but um i finally remembered something i wanted to bring up uh when we were talking about ice nine um it's almost ironic that i started this um read through talking about how I, you know, I felt from my initial read that this was, this book was a satire on religion. And in that first episode, you know, I walked that back uh, because, mm. you know, so far it, it doesn't seem too uh, thumbing nose. It, it, it's, it's, it's pointing out hypocrisy, but it's not being malicious so far. Right. You would no, agree with that? Being... Yeah, I'd agree but, with that. So but the funny thing now is, because, uh, you know, usually religion and science are kind of put at odds, kind of ba uh, pitted up against each other. Yet we've had kind of the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of religion. But on the other hand, the majority of the book has kind of been, look at the horrors of science. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Like it's 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 also more like the choice. Like, uh, 
an incomplete pic like when we work at things with an incomplete picture without thinking about meaning and implication and, and i think that's also what happened with you know the the dog house lady way back when the meaning of what we're actually what 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 we make a statement what that actually implies and what that actually means if you really think about it hmm. um so it's 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 an interesting whole uh, discussion. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up for today. Uh, the music at the top of the program was Back in Studio One by Lion Rhythms. The music at the end, as always, is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me on Twitter at Rue McMoo. And you can find our podcast at SMBSLT Podcast. That's both on Twitter and Facebook. And of course, if you add g- at gmail.com, you get our email address. Yeah, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you folks, what you think of the book so far, what you think of the podcast. If you have books you'd like to recommend that we read in the future, please tell us. We will take them under advisement. Also, if you listen to the podcast on any platform that allows you to rate and or review it, we would appreciate that as well. So until next week, we hope you're enjoying your reading. We hope you're staying safe and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.